Who are they? How did they get here and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today, we are joined in the Sojournal podcast by 1976 Johnson University, Tennessee graduate, William Butler. William, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tyson, glad to be here and glad to uh, have this time with you. Looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much for being a part of it. To get started, would you mind introducing yourself to those of our guests who might not know who you are? Well, I'm William Butler. I'm originally from Maryville, Tennessee, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the Tennessee campus. And I am married to Robin Butler, originally true from the class of 77. Together, we have two children, our son, Tyler, a senior program manager with Microsoft, and our daughter, Bethany, who worked in Papua New Guinea until her death last year. Hmm. Okay, so I knew that was coming, but I don't know how many other people knew that was coming. So uh, two children, Tyler and Bethany. So Tyler was the older? Yes. Okay. And you said you're from Maryville, Tennessee. Is that where you're living currently? Uh, Yes, that is where I'm currently living. We came here on furlough and COVID happened and the rest is, is like everybody else, we're we're making it up as we go. (laughs) I definitely get that. Uh, You said you were raised in, or well, you're from Maryville, Tennessee. Were you born, raised in Maryville, Tennessee area? Born, raised, went to high school. I'm pretty much rooted there. My great grandpa father was the first to come over the mountains from North Carolina. Is that right? And they settled. And uh, our family has been there ever since. My uh, mom's family goes back even further in this part of the country. So no matter where I roam, this is home. Mm. Wow. So your grandparents came over the mountains to to settle in in the Merrill area. Where did you go to high school? I went to Everett High School, which... uh, That's also the high school at Dr. Eubanks. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He and uh, my mom and aunt were one class right after the other. Mom was first and then Dr. Eubanks and then my aunt after that. So, you know, we we had a rich heritage there. And Dr. Eubanks was our baccalaureate speaker. Huh. Well, that's pretty cool to go to the same high school as, as Dr. Eubanks. I grew up on a farm, my maternal grandfather's farm. Did a lot of farming when I was growing up. Yeah. What'd you guys farm? Well, there were cows and tobacco, but the hard farming came with the crops, the watermelons, the cantaloupes, the potatoes, and later on cucumbers and okra. My uh, uncle was kind of into truck farming. That's where you grow things and then you haul them and sell them to wholesalers. Oh, okay. And Started with watermelons and cantaloupes because my grandfather was doing that before. And uh, he actually developed his own variety of watermelon 
back in the days before you could buy commercial watermelon. He worked over the years to develop his own seed. And it was well known in, in this part of the county for being a good variety of melon. Is any part of that farm still in the family, still doing it's, any agriculture? It's almost all still in the family. And my uncle is still farming and uh, his boys help him and they run a, a market here on the farm and sell a lot of produce that way. Plus they haul to Knoxville and Asheville and a few other places around. There's still crops being grown here. There's still cows in my backyard. <laughs> Were you raised in a Christian home then? Uh, yes and no. My mother uh, went to church fairly regularly and took my brother and I to church. We always went for Sunday school and didn't stay too often for church because dad was not a churchgoer. And uh, he would usually be up by that time and want to go somewhere and in order to keep peace, mom mm. always got us home by the time that he was ready to go. And then we'd go visit grandparents or drive around the country and look at the country we lived in. A lot of times we'd go uh, somewhere and look at a coon dog because my dad was a raccoon hunter. <laughs> and uh, we were always on the search for good dogs. And he was well known in this part of the county. And in fact, this part of the state as a coon hunter. Huh. In fact, during my time at Johnson, we had a regular supply on Sunday night. I would go home for the weekend and and uh, during the fall, late fall and winter when dad was hunting, uh, mom would roast up a coon and I would we'd take it off the bones and I'd bring the meat back to uh, campus with a loaf of bread. And uh, all the guys that were in the dorm over the weekend, they'd show up and want their coon meat sandwich. <laughs> Introduced great. a lot of a lot of city boys to country living. <laughs> Never heard such a story as somebody going and <laughs> bringing back coon meat sandwiches for the dorms. That's great. Uh, I'll tell you one better. Okay. Uh, on that little creek behind the old dump down there on the river, there's a creek goes up through there. And I, I was trying to catch mink. And I had some traps set up through there. And I caught a raccoon. And I, I didn't want to kill it because raccoons around in that area were pretty uncommon, but I could not get a hold of him in order to get him out of the trap. So I just had to kill him and bring him up. And I ran into another student, uh, David Kinneman, on, up around where the cows were behind the girls' dorm. And I was just kind of carrying it in my arm. And he said, oh, what is that? Can I carry it? And I just passed it over to him. And as I passed it over, it expressed some uh, air out of his lungs and it sort of growled and I just had to catch it because David just completely dropped but we ended up uh, going out in the woods and skinning that thing and uh, there was at that time before it was banned someone had a roaster in the dorm and we put that in the roaster and roasted it up and we all had right hot off the grill more or less <laughs> Wow. Things were different in those days, in the old Brown Hall. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. When you were, you said that yes and no, you were raised in a Christian home. So you were going to Sunday school. At what point in your young life did faith become legitimately yours and something that you were pursuing? Well, 
mom became more faithful in her attendance. And of course, we came along as, as well. Robin's dad, Clyde True, from the class of 62, he was our preacher uh, right after he graduated from Johnson. And he tried very hard to get my dad to come to church and come to the Lord. But dad just wouldn't. Uh, and it wasn't until I got old enough to where I began to consider Christ. And I really felt like I wanted to come to Christ. But I noticed that everyone who went forward at the invitation was crying. And I didn't think that I was a person who would cry. And therefore, I didn't think anyone would believe that I was really converting. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, finally, during one of the revivals, Don Baker, a Johnson grad, and Ken Overdorf was the evangelist. Uh, they came and called on me and talked to me about it. And they said, oh, don't worry about that. That's not an essential part of becoming a Christian. <laughs> and <laughs> the irony of it was that when I did go forward, from the time I stood on my feet until I got to the front, I was bawling my eyes out. <laughs> Don Baker and Ken Overdorf visited you. Yeah, Don was the preacher who came after Clyde. Clyde was the preacher that... Yeah, uh, he the... came there from in 62, and he was very influential in my life, even though we didn't really stay for the preaching service very often. But he was a, he was a dynamic believer in Christ who thought that everyone should be a Christian. Mm. And he worked very hard on people in the community. And the, it was an exciting time in the church. The church was growing. And it was just an exciting time to me as a young kid. And vacation Bible schools were, were great. And, you know, I was just growing up in the Lord without really having made a commitment. And then he was called up to Ohio. Don Baker came next. And then uh, by that time, I was 12. and. Uh, I became a Christian at that time. So you were 12 when you became a Christian? Yes. So Don Baker was the minister. Ken Overdorf then was the uh, revival speaker. Now, I had the fortune of having him as a professor when uh, I was at Johnson. Is that right? Yes. Practical Ministries 201, I think it was, better known as Marion, Barion, and Baptizing. <laughs> Marion, Barion, and Baptizing. <laughs> yeah, because it was the one that taught you how to do all those practical things. So did it teach you to baptize upriver and not downriver? <laughs> yes, and that's very useful in Papua New Guinea, because if you baptize someone <laughs> downriver, <laughs> the rivers can be swift. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So Clyde True, you said Clyde was Robin's dad? Yes. So did you know Robin growing up? Well, we were pretty young. We don't have any recollection of one another at that point, but I always knew her family. I knew about her, and I'd like to say I fell in love with her at that point, but I didn't. <laughs> I, you know, she was a girl. I mean, I had no use for girls at that age, but... Uh, the time that we we really, she remembers the year I was a freshman at Johnson. She was a senior at high school. Her brother, Gary True, was also a, sen a senior at Johnson when I got there. And uh, I became his little brother. 
and uh, we did a lot of things together. Robin came for a visit one time, and I remember thinking that Gary had a pretty cool sister. <laughs> then she showed up there the next year, by which time I no longer had a girlfriend. And uh, I went along on a trip with someone going home for the weekend, and we gave her a ride to Louisville. Anyway, things began to develop. So baptized at 12 under the influence of Ken and Don, and of course, Clyde as well, having some influence, a lot of Johnson guys there. So I assume that was naturally the way that you found Johnson. Were you encouraged to pursue ministry? Did you have other ideas in mind when you were approaching graduation from high school? Yes, uh, but Don was very intentional in inviting me to go with him when he was going over to Johnson because I, I was a good student and, you know, I really appreciate all the things that I was learning in Sunday school. And by that time, we started to attend church as well. The moment I was baptized, we stopped being part-time mm. attenders. We were there every Sunday school, every Sunday service, every Sunday evening service, and every Wednesday night prayer meeting. Just mom tried her best to do right by us. Mm. So Don helped me, you know, get familiar with the campus. And also uh, at, for a period there, the Christian service camp was held on the Johnson campus in the summertime. And mm -hmm. so every summer I was over there going to camp and had a lot of good memories from that experience. I mean, that's a lot different than going there to college, but by the time I arrived as a freshman, it was a very familiar place. Did you have any intention at all about going elsewhere or was? I had no intention at all of going to Johnson. Oh, really? At that point. Uh -huh. Yes. Dr. Neil Clapp was uh, one of the deans mm -hmm. uh, and one of the teachers, usually at the week that I was there because his daughter and I were the same age. So he tended to come that week. And I just thought he was the coolest guy in the world <laughs> because growing up and going through high school, I was very keen in math and science and attended a couple of special seminars for gifted science students at UT. And as far as I was concerned, up through my junior year, I was on my way to become a nuclear scientist and mm -hmm. work at Oak Ridge. Mm -hmm. And everything I was doing was aimed toward that. Then between my junior year and my senior year, things changed. <laughs> there were a couple of uh, couples, older couples at my home congregation that greatly encouraged me to consider uh, going to Johnson and becoming a preacher. Well, I, I really didn't have that much interest in it because I was very introverted. I did not consider myself to be the kind of person that would make a good minister. But I did like the idea of studying the word and getting to know more about God through the study of his word. And so God began to work on me. And uh, by the time I enrolled for my senior classes, I went in and told my math teacher that I was going to drop his calculus class. And he was not very thrilled. I bet. Uh, 
I dropped calculus and I took the Bible class that was offered at the school. I guess you'd say the rest is history. So they offered Bible classes in They high had school. a Bible class. This was, we're in East Tennessee. And even for many years afterwards, a Bible class was offered. Mm. Wow. How did God get a hold of you? What was that switch that made you pivot? I think probably deep down, I already knew that something needed to change, but definitely these two couples that I highly respected. Mm. Looking back on my life, I find that at many junctures, I was a people pleaser, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to please and meet people's expectations of me. And I guess the fact that they thought that I could make a preacher gave me the confidence to try Mm. because I was still very introverted and really just didn't like to talk to people very much. And it's hard to believe uh, if you meet me now, (laughs) I still am introverted, but I, I have a good uh, persona that I have manufactured for myself. That's more extroverted. Uh, (laughs) Lots of people kept working on me. (laughs) So when you came to Johnson then as a freshman, were you coming to study the preaching vocation? I was. One thing that wasn't necessarily directed toward preparing me to be a nuclear scientist was I took French class in high school, all three years that were offered, and I enjoyed that. So I, you know, signed up for Greek and I was really, I, I was pretty confident in my knowledge of the Bible compared to other students at that point. And uh, that ended the first day I went to Dean Clark's class, (laughs) The Life of Christ. And he gives us the very first day of class, he gives us the final exam. (laughs) And I thought I knew the life of Christ pretty well, but he started asking about things that happened between the Testaments, because that was also covered in <laughs> life of Christ. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know any of that stuff. And I didn't, the, I didn't know some of the questions about Christ either. So <laughs> I, I took a step back in my estimation of myself and <laughs> put my nose to the grindstone and learned all those things. And that's great. (laughs) Dr. Clark, I tell you what, I I hear so many interesting stories about him that uh, I I don't know if I'm blessed not to have had him or if I am, you know, unfortunate not to have had him because the it's a little of both to be honest. Yeah. Okay. So you came to be a preacher. Is that what you ended up graduating with? Yes. Okay. I I owe it to my homiletics class. Uh, one of the most quoted things that I heard at Johnson. One day, a guy got up to preach, and he had a very unusual interpretation of the passage that he was assigned to preach on. And when he was done, Dr. Weedman, who was teaching the class, said, well, everyone's entitled to their own wrong opinion. <laughs> And I have quoted that many times through the years. (laughs) Well, I mean, what do you say after someone preaches a real rulu of a sermon that totally misses the point of the passage? Where did Robin fall into your four-year journey? Robin came when I was a sophomore. 
I believe it was in the fall of that year that we started dating. And uh, we hung out a lot together because another couple that I was friends with the guy and she was friends with the girl and they, they hung out together. And so we kind of hung out together with them and gradually uh, the relationship developed and we carried on like that for quite some time. Robin, because of her former connection to my home church at Mountain View, she would come home on the weekend sometimes with me and uh, visit people that were very close friends of her family when they were here during the ministry. And everybody loved to see her there. Mm -hmm. They thought she just belonged. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon I got the idea. <laughs> you know, remember, you, I said I was a people pleaser. Uh -huh. <laughs> people were kind of telling me that you know you got a good thing there yeah well we we dated all through the rest of uh, my time at Johnson it was after my junior year that I proposed and she very graciously accepted we waited until the week after my graduation to get married and interestingly enough we ended up being married here at Mountain View in my home church, because as a preacher's daughter, she didn't really have a home church per se. She had right. moved around in three or four different congregations, and she liked the setting, and she liked the church because it had a central aisle, and where her dad was preaching at that time did not, so. Did her dad anyway, do the service? Yes, That's her dad and her brother. What other things do you remember about your time here at Johnson? Well. My class was a very unified class, pretty well connected, and we were trying to do things to sort of build up the, the spirit of being here on campus. We began a couple of things that were carried on for a number of years, even after we were gone. One of them was a hoot nanny. We had uh, Ronnie McKinney and a few others in our class that we had up in the old gym. We brought in hay and straw and decorated and played a lot of good old music and mountain music, bluegrass, country. I mean, we had live musicians and uh, people told stories and it's just like Hee Haw was in its day back then. So, <laughs> you know, we had plenty of examples to go from. The other thing was the Preacher Grand Prix. Uh-huh. You may have heard about that. Oh, yeah. that's still. I don't happens. know if it's still going on or not. It does. Yep. Still goes okay, on. Okay. Well, the very first Grand Prix, we really played it up because Mike Lacey was a professor at that time and Dr. Weedman. And so we kind of pitted those against each other. And we don't know why, but they agreed. <laughs> and so they rode in little red wagons. And each of the four classes, we uh, raced the two different wagons all around the big square, down from Chapel Hill and in front of P.H. Welshmer building that was still being built, up all the way around to complete the square. And uh, <laughs> it was our class that started that. How about that? Those were things that we did. And we, we continued to stay well connected. Even after graduation, we had a class newsletter from time to time. That sounds neat that you all stayed connected that way, even after graduation. I think it built because we did all those crazy things together. 
as well as you know the the serious side of campus life studying uh -huh. and passing uh -huh. tests and and uh the other things but what about uh classes what do you remember faculty members or specific class episodes i did really like dean black's classes mm. all his old testament classes and his stories you know the the plagues in egypt and the frogs he just he went through a whole little drama the day we covered the plague of frogs pharaoh in bed and getting out and he wants to put his house slippers on and he reaches down and he puts his foot in the slipper and there's a frog in there and so he very gently removes it takes the frog out of the slipper and says oh god i'm sorry i didn't mean to step on you god <laughs> and, and he did that so many you know so he just made things come alive and uh it was a very good example of how you can take the Bible stories and make them seem real. People don't often think of how they might have happened. Mm. Uh, Dean Black was not above adding a little bit of uh, artistic license to make the story seem like it was something that really happened. And mm. I found that was very useful preparation later on when I was teaching Papua New Guineans the history of the Old Testament and I could dramatize stories in that way and it would just click with them because they were used to listening to stories from their ancestors and uh, they could hear the Bible stories and they would seem real to them and I you know I got a lot of ammunition for that from what Dean Black did in class. Okay, so you graduated with a preaching degree. Did you then go into preaching for a while? No, I was already turning toward the possibility of being a Bible translator. During my junior year, Al Hamilton, also of Johnson Heritage, came to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, that night, I was not in chapel. I almost always didn't miss chapel, but that time my high school friend was getting married and I was in the wedding party and that was the night of their rehearsal. So I took one of my skips and went to the rehearsal. And when I came back, the campus was a buzz from this crazy guy that had spoken in chapel about people in the world that didn't have the Bible that they could read. And my roommate, he was all stoked up for that. And he told me all about it. He seemed ready to sign up to go. And I, you know, I, I sat and I thought about that. And I looked at the back of my bunk there and I had all these Bibles lined up, different versions. And I had the 26 translation compilation in English. And I thought, good grief. There are people that don't have a Bible and I have all this. Well, two days later, I was in the bookstore and the student who was running the bookstore was also in my Greek class and as I was heading out he asked me a question about the Greek lesson that day so I stopped to explain what I understood and I felt someone tap me on the left shoulder so naturally I look left and over my right shoulder I hear sounds like you'd make a good bible translator <laughs> and I quickly looked around, but I, all I saw was the back of someone going out the door. And I said to my fellow student, do you know who that was? And he said, oh, yeah, that's that 
crazy Hamilton guy that spoke in chapel a couple of nights ago. <laughs> and uh, I, I trace my being specifically recruited for Pioneer Bible Translators to that moment because that was a seed that was planted that I just could not root out. Mm. It just would not go away. And then uh, at that time, Lincoln Christian Seminary was trying to develop a program to prepare people to be Bible translators. I thought, okay, well, I can go on to seminary. I've been thinking about going to seminary anyway. So I'll go on to seminary and I'll learn about more about this Bible translation and I'll get my MDiv. Robin was on board with that. Before we got married, she knew that I wanted to be a missionary. And she was okay with that because she thought I was going to go on and get an MDiv and that was going to be three years and she'd have time to get used to the idea by then. But I went up to seminary and I did okay, but there were some complications with the classes I really wanted and I ended up not being satisfied very much my first year there. During that time, Pioneer Bible Translators had its first meeting ever on campus of the people who had an interest in Pioneer Bible Translators. And John and Benita Pryor and David and Sharon Pryor were just about ready to go to the field. And uh, they came to that. And John and Benita, because we knew them from Johnson as well, uh, they came and stayed with us. And John, sensing my dissatisfaction with the way seminary was going at that point, he said, you know, if you're really serious about this Bible translation stuff, you wouldn't be wasting your time here in seminary. You'd go on down and start taking the specific courses that are designed to teach you to be a Bible translator. So again, I listened to what someone told me about myself and we loaded up that summer. Our plan was to go down to the summer program in Norman, Oklahoma, and then come back to seminary in the fall. Well, I'll tell you, I was a, a top student at Johnson, and I left Lincoln after that first year with two incompletes because I just kind of lost the urge to study, and I just had sort of turned off my educational side. And I went down to Norman, enrolled in the linguistics classes. And after two weeks, I had finished both the term papers that I had not finished at Lincoln and turned them in. And the lights were on and I was home. Mm. And we never looked back after that. So we went from that summer. Uh, they also had uh, with the Bible translators who had provided that summer program, we're also starting a course down in Texas. That was a full school year. So we went on down to, to the Dallas area and enrolled in that and spent two semesters there. The next summer, we came back to Norman. I was a teaching assistant and Robin ran well, she didn't start out running. She was in the child care program. Robin ended up in charge of the program at the end of the summer. <laughs> then after that, uh, we went out and started raising our support. And in May of 79, we moved to Papua New Guinea. We stayed a while. <laughs> How many years were you in Papua New Guinea before coming back just before COVID hit? Forty. 
And just before you came back, you all had finalized the translation of the New Testament. Is that right? Yes. Uh, we completed the translation in May of 2019 and sent it off to the printer. And we scheduled the dedication for June. Unfortunately, there was an unexpected delay at the printer. They couldn't find paper. So the books didn't come back, but because people had already bought international tickets and everything was already planned by the time we found that out, we went ahead with the dedication. The water and people said, we don't care that the books are not here yet. We know they are coming. We are celebrating that the work is done. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a pretty generous attitude. I felt pretty raw about the fact that the books weren't there, but in the end, it really didn't matter to them. Do I remember right that you actually did get to go back and distribute those when they were completed? Yes. After, after the dedication ceremony was over, we took a short break, and then we got word from the printer that the books were finally shipped. And then from there until the early part of October, I worked very hard to get those books into the country. There mm. was glitch after glitch after glitch. And finally, uh, they were in country, but then customs wouldn't release them. And finally, we got them released. And I had about two weeks left before I had to be out of the country. So Bethany and I drove down from our coastal town of Medang to the port city and picked them up and traveled back to Medang, finally located a plane due to my brother-in-law, Leon, helping us out. And we got the books to the village and Bethany and I spent 10 days touring as many of the water and villages as we could get to because the water was still pretty low for that time of the year. Uh, we we distributed the books to the people uh, before we left. Mm. Wow. In that 40 years in Papua New Guinea, what can you tell us about what life and ministry was like for you in Papua New Guinea for 40 years? It was a lot of moving forward only to slide back mm. and move forward again only to slide back a little bit. There were a lot of fits and starts. The first, first 10 years, we worked on getting together a couple of teams of villagers to help us because I knew that no matter how long I studied the language, I was never going to be as proficient in the language as the native speakers. And so we wanted to have a team of native speakers who would be the actual translators and reviewers of the translation. And we got these two teams trained and started working about, there was four men on each team. And I figured if each team worked half time, then I could work full time just with different teams and we, we'd make good progress. But over the next two or three years, one by one, they gradually slipped away, different things happening in their families, or they found that it wasn't quite as easy sitting in an office all day as they thought. Some of them just found it too hard. And we ended up with two men who I would have initially said were the least qualified hmm. to do the translation, but they were the persistent ones. And uh, 
I don't know. We were we were at a particularly low point when we came on furlough in '88, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go back or not. I was just so disheartened to have spent all that time training and then have the teams fall apart and not be left with much to work with. But interestingly enough, it was Robin who was putting the pressure on to go back. And it seems like looking back over the years, every time that I felt like maybe it'd be a good time to quit, Robin would come alongside and say, don't you think it's time to get our new passports? Don't you think it's time to get the paperwork done? And shouldn't we be looking at some tickets? And she kept us going. Hmm. Gotta love that. The Lord sends us the right help meet. That's right. He did a very good job. I'm assuming that you had both Bethany and Tyler as you were missionaries on the field. Did you come back to the States to get birth or how did that work out? Tyler was born on our first furlough. Okay. And uh, then Bethany was born in Papua New Guinea and she was very proud of it. She was Papua New Guinea and through and through. Yeah. I sort of got that sense when I knew her uh, as she was a student here at Johnson and, and just knowing, you know, the life that she led. I mean, Papua New Guinea was her home. Really... Yes, it very much was. And, uh, you know, she she was very proud to be from Papua New Guinea and the manufacturers in Papua New Guinea came up with a little logo that they wanted to put on things that said made in PNG. <laughs> and she always told me that she wanted to have a tattoo on her ankle that said made in PNG. <laughs> because in many ways she was, she, she grew up in the village and she was, it, in some ways, it was easier for her to integrate into the village because the little boys and their dads were always out running through the jungle and stuff. And that really wasn't our son's cup of tea. But Bethany, the, the mamas and their little kids were always around the village. And Bethany just went out and she was just one amongst equals. And the mamas taught her just like they taught their own kids. And um, she really took to it. When she was growing up, I would have to go outside and look under the house to see if she was there or not, because when she was speaking water, and I couldn't tell if it was her or someone else. You know, <laughs> she sounded just like them. So as hard as it was for us, we feel like it was fitting that she was still in Papua New Guinea when she passed away and that we were able to get special permission to bury her in the village where she grew up. Hmm. so her body will remain with the water and people i know that that cannot be easy on you and robin but you absolutely know that 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 was where no it took me months to be able to talk about it but i think about our parents you know and how much they missed us and how much they wanted us to be there with them and sharing family events with them Mm -hmm. And we went off to do God's mission in Papua New Guinea and tried not to think about their feelings. Well, it's not surprising that our daughter would do the same. Mm. I mean, initially she was there with us, but she became her own person and she did her own ministry. And it's just fitting. And what can I say? Yeah. You know? You know, she wasn't doing that to, to hurt you or to spite you, but she was oh, no, doing that to no. follow God. I mean, it's just, it's that's so right. beautiful. That's 
as a as a parent to see one of my yeah. kids do that it, it's not about it's not about me and my family relationship it's about god yeah. and right what what does it take and, to glorify him you know we we are so proud of both of our children both have followed the path that is laid out for them and they have excelled in uh, in the roles that god has given them well, I would say it sounds like it. If you said Tyler's an engineer at Microsoft, wow. He's a program manager. A program manager. Yeah, he that's, tells other people what to do. <laughs> that's uh, I mean, that's he quite does a, a lot job. of work himself, but uh, yeah. he, he has worked on some exciting projects through the years. I'll bet. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you two more questions, and then I'll let you go. First of all, thank you for giving me you know, the time talking about your uh, your journey and your time in PNG and and how the Lord's working through all of this. Uh, of course, our prayers continue to be with you, um, and, you. and Robin, because I, I just don't know that you ever get over the loss of a child like you all had to go through with Bethany. Um, and, and I know one, you will for a while. One of uh, our preachers that was the preacher when I was in high school here, he lost a son. And when Bethany died... He sent us a message and he said, don't even think that you will get over this. You will never get over this. All you can hope for is to get through it. Mm. And that is a piece of wisdom that I found very, very valuable and helps me to keep things in perspective. Mm -hmm. We will never get over it, but go it's, on. You can. Isn't it interesting that he was there, though, to give you that piece of advice? I mean... It's, you know, God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those with the troubles and the, yes. in their troubles with the comfort we ourselves right. have received. Yes. Uh, I think that's what you've got there. Okay, so um, first question, I said I'm going to ask you two. First question is, what is something you've learned throughout your journey that you would want other people to know? It is always about the people. We all, especially Westerners, we are very programmed people. We're very time-oriented. We are driven personalities for the most part. And I would suspect that in most places that missionaries will go, they will not find people like that. I know in Papua New Guinea, it's relationships trump everything. And if you don't have a good relationship with a person, you can't really speak to them so that they will listen. So building relationships is essential, I think, to any kind of successful mission venture. And that's with the people that you're trying to minister to. If you happen to be in a team, build relationships with you, within your team too. You're not in competition with your fellow missionaries you're in cooperation and you're not in competition with the local preachers or any other missions. We all have to be working in this together. And I feel like, like the Lord was intentional in spending time with people and developing them and speaking to them to administer truth to their situation. Hmm. Last question. And uh, I've been asking this one of all of our podcast guests. So I'm going to hit you with this one here. I'll give you the question. I'm going to do a commercial. Then I'll give you the chance to answer the question. Let's just play pretend. 
For the next 60 seconds, the entire world is going to listen to this podcast. What are you going to tell the world in 60 seconds? While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojourner Podcast has been brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So William Butler, a graduate of Johnson University, Tennessee, or Johnson Bible College, from the class of 1976, a local boy from Maryville, Tennessee, who uh, actually went to the same high school as Dr. David Eubanks, and a more than 40-year missionary in Papua New Guinea with the Warren people. William, what one-minute message would you give to the world? That's not a question I'm prepared to answer without any preparation. <laughs> but here goes. Uh, I think the most important thing that we can ever do in life is develop our relationship with Jesus Christ and do everything that we possibly can to ensure that everyone that we know and everyone that we come in contact with becomes aware of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for them. I believe that that is our mission into the world. and. Your part in it might be on the far side of the earth, or it might be right next door. But no one should go to their grave without being personally challenged with the claims of Jesus Christ and an opportunity to develop a relationship with him. Hmm. Very well said. Succinct, clear, and compelling. William, thank you so much. God bless you and and all that you continue to do. And of course, our love to Robin as well. Thank you for being my guest today on the Sojournal Podcast. I'm glad to be here. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University. Edited by Tyson Chastain. Music by Loyal Love. Podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal podcasts dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.